I'm Fran, and this is Consent Based Everything, a podcast about creating a culture of consent in our homes and beyond. Hello, uh, I'm here today with Sophie Christophe, and I'm thrilled to have you here, Sophie, because we've been trying to get together for a long, long time, and it's finally happened, uh, so I'm very excited. Uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do and how you came to do this work. Yeah, sure. Hi, Fran. Oh, I'm so happy to chat with you. Okay, so I'm Sophie. I'm I'm based in the UK. And um, since about 2010, I've been working on children's rights issues and how they intersect with social justice. And that's led really specifically to work about consent based practice. Um, I co-founded a learning community in 2018 that's based on consent-based education and self-direction and a bunch of other important guiding principles, but the really key one is around consensuality. Um, And we, yeah, and we run um, two days a week and we also have a second setting now that we opened about two years ago, which um, is for older young people as well. So we go from five up until 14. Um, And then in addition to that, I work with individuals and groups and teams and other settings who either want to live a more consent based life um, individually or as a family um, or who have a setting or want to start a setting that's consent based. Um, And I do that through kind of mentorship, consultancy kind of stuff as well. So that's what I do, <laughs> um, I think, in a nutshell. And you asked how I got into the work. And the important thing that happened in 2018 was that, uh, not 2018, in 2010, um, was that I had my daughter, who's my eldest child. Um, she's 13 now. And I would say that pregnancy and experience of becoming a mum to her was a very big catalytic event in my life. Some kind of awakening or shift happened around that and it really gave me the experience to see the problems in our wider culture for children in a different way um and yeah really kicked off my work to question the culture we live in and what alternatives might exist or not um yeah yeah thank thank you for uh saying that Sophie and I think a lot of people can relate to that having their child first child and then just having a completely different, suddenly having a completely different lens on everything. Um, and that's certainly what, what happened with me as well. Although it was a much slower, it wasn't sudden, it was like years, basically. Mm-hmm. Kind of a slower journey into this. Um, but I should, I should say also for whoever's listening that you're kind of like the queen of consent-based education um and you know obviously there's no hierarchy in consent-based education but but you are you you know you run a course about it and I talk a lot about consent and consent-based living and consent-based education but I've learned so much from your writing and the course that you run and I'd love for you to kind of tell us tell us a little bit about how you define it I guess, yeah. how you define consent or how you define consent-based. Nurse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nurse, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. Okay, um, thank you. Like, 
yeah queen you know it's interesting term isn't it but I I mean I appreciate that Fran like it's been a lot of I don't know thinking working over the years to kind of come to that point of clarity and I, I feel like um it is helpful to talk about like what I mean by it you know I, I think the main thing for me is to say that consent I didn't come to it like randomly it wasn't like I flipped to a book and was like oh yeah that makes sense it's like the sum of an equation that um came as a result of really uh, questioning power dynamics um for me I, I realized that the reason why children experience the um type of relationships with adults that they do is also an aspect of patriarchy just like how women have struggled with um power problems and men you know it affects and people you know non-binary folk as well i mean it affects us all in different way nuanced ways um but essentially it is power over dynamic um is the issue and that was that how that leads to people to have problematic understandings of people based on their age or other aspects of their identity which then is used to justify power over and domination so this is the problem. And for me, the solution to that or the antidote is consensuality because it completely dissolves power over dynamic. It's like the antidote to patriarchy. And it was through a long process of understanding that, if you see what I mean, that then led me to, oh, this, when you do the maths, the answer to the equation is consent. It's consensuality. It's consent-based relationships. What does that mean in a family? What does that mean in with the relationship between me and myself? What does that mean in a learning environment? Or, you know, it's just you're applying the same principle to almost any aspect of life that relationship exists of any kind. Um, yeah. So for me, the simplest way to define consent is to say that it's about a freely given choice um yeah that's informed you know so a person is making a, a choice from their authentic self that's meaning that's what I think is important in this really is that you can't really meaningfully consent if you aren't connected to yourself that's where it should come from um and that it's given without being fearful um so if there's any aspect of fearfulness around it which to me is different to the potential risks or natural consequences that might come but like an um, elevated aspect of fear like a coercive element of fearfulness um yeah you need that to not be there for it to be consensual basically so you're always thinking about those two things like has someone made an informed choice how freely was it given helps you understand like how consensual it is or was yeah and obviously if you're in a relationship where there's a power imbalance you will there will be an element of fear or coercion coming from that relationship and there might also be an element of you not being able to really know yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And I think and I think what I completely missed initially when I was starting to think about consent, and I think this is very common, is that you miss, you either miss or you don't really want to talk about the, um, the, the systemic aspect of it. So the mm -hmm. fact that, like, you can't really talk about consent-based without talking about um, the patriarchy or other systems of oppression yeah. or power dynamics or like hierarchies. And those two things are like linked and you kind of explained the way that you see it just now and that linked them in a very kind of streamlined way. Um, and I think this is a why a lot of the time a lot of people think that uh, consent is just asking for permission 
and receive mm -hmm. yes or no. Uh, and I mean, it can be, but I don't think you can, you can just, I don't think it's just that obviously. And I don't think you can separate that from like the, the wider picture of what it really is. Totally. Um, I totally agree. And the context, cultural context is really important for the experience of consent. Because like you say, you could think, oh, if you're just giving a person a choice, or well, then that equals something consensual, but that's not the case. It's not just what has happened, but it, the way it's the way that it's happening and it's the wider context that's happening within, which is really crucial. And actually in our in our learning communities, most of the effort around generating a situation that can be consensual and self-directed is around culture creation. It's about what is the culture. And I think this is why people miss the institutional systemic aspect is because we are largely blind to our cultural context because we have been raised in the context as normal or as life. You know, it's like this is reality and we're then navigating a human reality, but we aren't. We're navigating a constructed reality that has a specific culture um, that we a part of creating but also that we're born into you know and that's already established and becomes institutionalized by people before we're born um so yeah you you it's um if you want to increase the experience of consent-based anything you are always going to be looking like what is the culture of this relationship what is the culture of this place what is my internal culture um so that then you can create the conditions that a meaningful self-directed consent-based anything can then happen in um yeah. and I think that's uh, also the potential of it in the sense that like uh like when I took your course for example we created our course culture right at the very beginning when we yeah. were like deciding uh what was going to be okay in the space what was not going to be okay like what we were going to ask consent around uh and all that stuff and I think you can do that in your family and then you can do that and presumably you do that in your learning um what do you what do you call it a, is it a yeah or a setting yeah um yeah. and i don't want to share like how you do that well i mean one of the cool things about this and it's kind of how you i came to it but also a positive outcome of practicing it is that um, social justice is really crucial for consent-based self-direction because discrimination disrupts a person's self-direction. They don't feel entitled to make the same choices as other folk. They don't feel, you know, discrimination of any kind or marginalization of any kind impacts self-esteem and therefore it's disruptive to this. And so if you want to then, okay, so what's the solution to that? Well, you have to try and create a culture whereby there isn't discrimination. You, you, you know, actively, how can you how can you try and make sure that everyone in the place can have good self-esteem? Um, so it's like, I love how like the answer creates the change you wanna see. It's like, if, you know, do you see what I mean by that? It's like, you've come, uh, if you come to an answer, but then you're like, literally it's in practicing the antidote that you then address the original problem, like naturally. Um, not just because you are so committed to being anti-racist or anti-sexist or whatever it is, but to give freedom to all the people in that environment to consent to what is going on. It's really amazing. It like transcends um, most uh, identity-based activism, I think, in a way, because you need to create that for a community to thrive, if you see what I mean. So 
um yeah it's so interesting um but how we uh, how, was your question like how how i would go about that or like how we do track, that? yeah um and this is like there's grief to this as well because in an ideal scenario we would just live in a, in that culture all the time and it wouldn't be necessary to be so explicit so for me i have some grief every time i intentionally create this culture because i just wish that it was normalized um and because it's because it's not normal you have to be way more explicit in every action you take to create it so for example every time i start working with someone um whether it's one-to-one -one or in a group or online or in person we always have to establish like a shared set of values and a shared set of agreements because we can't rely on the ones that the culture might have given the individuals in the space um so you kind of have to bring it into the open you know here here are the guiding principles like our settings have visible guiding principles there's five of them they address like key areas of relating and they help they're like our compass then to produce everything else like our policies or our reactions come from that place um so that's a really important foundation but then you know person to person on the day yeah like you said making agreements initially is a really important um uh, process because you just reduce the chance of non-consensual things happening by voicing like what people's needs are like to be together in a way that feels good yeah yeah thank you for that um kind of lost my train of thought now but um <laughs> thinking all the things and, like, something about it I mean I think whenever we like talking about consent is really important obviously that's like why we're here but conflict is so important too and I and I feel like that is something that maybe also sometimes gets missed in like the conversation of like moving from power over to something else because if you are going to try and have consent you also need to be open to conflict which is basically when like there isn't a yes yes you know it's like the, it can't happen the way that the person wants it to happen like what next um mm. because also we're like culturally disadvantaged as, at least in the UK probably you imagine like any western like culture other cultures potentially as well um we're very fearful often around conflict it tends to trigger like a fight flies freeze fawn stress response and often conflict just becomes like suppressed or buried or pushed to the side or saved for later or kind of like ignored because it's so uncomfortable um and that can also be as disruptive to consensuality as other issues around power so i think like yeah exploring kind of where like we have very clear a very clear relationship with conflict management in our settings which is firstly bring the problem to light it's very much about open like say what's going on is the first step um but i think it's an area of struggle definitely for like folk who are wanting to you know have a more consent-based lived experience for sure and i think within families as well it can be really hard to like lean into the conflict and to like reframe it as something that's ultimately positive. Um, and to also have like, I've found with time that I've developed a, 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 a structure around the conflict in the sense that like, how am I gonna manage this? So mm -hmm. I, I have a kind of, and it's not always the same, but I have, a, you know, first of all, a, a way now to be calm like yeah. what is happening because I get very heightened often by and I'm sure that a lot of people do by even the the kind of any hint of conflict um but so I'm able to kind of shepherd my children and myself through the 
the, through the entire conflict and come to some kind of resolution. And even if it's not an immediate resolution, even if it's mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, now we're going to take some time and like, yeah, everyone's going to do a thing and then we're going to come back together or whatever. So, yeah. and that's, you know, it doesn't always go, you know, it, it's yeah. not peaceful. It's not always like a peaceful resolution. And there's, and I'm sure, I mean, you see this probably all the time that like there might be, and I have one child in particular who does not want to come to resolution sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is difficult. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know where I was going with this, but that I think conflict is, is a huge part of being consent-based, right? Like you have yeah. to be okay with it. Yeah. And I think in a lot of these things are also like really put under pressure when you're in a family group or like a small number of people, because there are less, you're less resourced to address things. So like, for example, in, when you're in a, a bigger group, like a community with a team of folk who are helping that community out, um, different people can step forward into different situations when they are like ready to do that, or they feel confident to do that. Or for another reason, like, um, in the settings parents don't if we have a lot of parent facilitators on our staff team and they do not mediate their own children's conflict because of the power problem that would come with that not being met equally with an advocate on the other side potentially even with the best will in the world it's present in some way um but yeah I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm really really aware that like um the family the, the normal family setups that we live within often make this more challenging which again it's like sad for me because I feel like we could be you know I'm sure you know right we could feel more supported we could feel more resourced but we're kind of all split up and it's so separated that it's um makes it more tricky but one of the easiest things I think for me it's like a mantra almost around conflict is that conflict is a mismatch in needs and or a misunderstanding and every time I feel myself approaching what feels like my boundaries have been crossed or I've noticed something that doesn't feel right or I'm upset about something or I'm frustrated or I'm helping other people navigate their conflict I always come back to that what's happening is a mismatch in needs and or a misunderstanding and so the way through it is to understand the needs and see what the alternatives are for them to be met and increase the understanding and if and returning to that really helps to depersonalize it so that people are less triggered often and give you a like an anchor point you know if we can figure these things out a bit then probably it's going to go away um and I've just found it so helpful like to hold that it's kind of like if consent is a matching in needs and a shared understanding like leads to like a consensual yes yes you know then this is the sort of other side um and I think also there's like different kinds of coming to agreements right like there might be you know there are times that we uh, need to just get something done and we have to come up with an agreement that will make that will make sense for everybody but that isn't ideal for everyone necessarily yeah. because it's something that nobody enjoys like grocery shopping or whatever yeah um, and there are yeah. other times, you know like uh when for example in in the case of my children's learning and like what they choose to do with their time where like I want them to be enthusiastic about it like I want an enthusiastic yes, right? Like if I'm like, hey, would you like me to read you this or whatever? Like mm -hmm. I want, if the reaction is not like, yes, yes, I do. Uh, then I don't want to do it. Do you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like there are moments when yeah, that's so is what you want, right? And then there yeah. are other moments when 
it is a mismatch in needs and perhaps you just need to find whatever works for everybody or to just come up with an agreement that everybody can bear uh, in order to get a thing done that needs to be done I think uh, yeah I think what again like what what kind of we've used as a sort of um way to think about this for the settings but also I use it personally as well is around this notion of like fixed parts and moving parts and that all families or communities have certain fixed parts and the fixed parts are the the things that need to happen in order for the thing to function at all so grocery shopping would fit within a fixed part but sleep access could fit within a fixed part depending on your family um you know it really is can be tailored to the needs of your actual family and the people in it you know what gets fixed but what can stay moving and um moving basically means people can choose what they want to do you know it's like the really most consensual self-directed part and the fix is like what has to happen because if it doesn't the whole thing will fall apart <laughs> um and and obviously the more moving you have the better um, the, but you do need the fix for it to actually feel safe and I often also when I'm working with folk who are founding settings I'm like you there's a balance point where you feel all feel held but there's enough freedom within it for people to feel more free because of the safety that they also feel and too much fixed is going to start to feel controlling and like not enough um, autonomy and agency but too little will also feel not good like if there is nothing that is fixed you're going to feel potentially quite unsafe and it's actually harder to be self-directed again like in that experience you know so and with parents I would often say like it's 80 20 like if 20 percent is fixed and 80 percent is moving then you're like good to go really and so it is the 20 percent is the compromise right where um usually as a parent but not necessarily you know it could come from one of the children or anyone that you recognize now this actually is not it's not negotiable so we can't make an agreement around it this has to happen like it would be a false question to ask you if you want to or not because it has to happen otherwise we have no food you see what I mean yeah Yeah, you're trying to like save your questions for when any possible outcome could work where there is genuine negotiation because otherwise again it's like becomes can become a bit confusing I think yeah and I think that does become confusing for especially for a lot of unschooling parents it's like, so what is, what is fixed? And like, also what, I love that language, by the way, moving and fixed, like that makes so much sense, just like intuitively. Um, mm-hmm. But also maybe some things are like, maybe it's like a continuum, right? Like some things can be a bit of both or can mm-hmm. be along that line. And then some things are just fixed, like grocery shopping. <laughs> and like, maybe it can be done in different ways in the sense that there is there are moving parts to it. Yeah, how are we going to make it less painful for everybody, Uh, you know, or whatever. Um, But yeah, I think that there is not confusion, but I think there's a lot of reluctance as well to to like embrace this idea of like uh, being consent based because of a perception that you have to do whatever your children want at Mm -hmm. all times. Uh, when of course that's not like if if we were living in bigger communities for example you know that wouldn't we wouldn't the adults wouldn't just be doing whatever the children want all the time and the children wouldn't be doing whatever the adults want all the time there would be mutuality there probably wouldn't be a separation like that either you know it would be more fluid I don't know what it would be like it you know this is like a utopia that (laughs) you know in time Um, 
but I think, yeah. So I think that, you know, the, I think a lot of people question though, like how, what are the fixed things? I, yeah. Like a lot of people don't know what the fixed things should be. Do you know what I'm saying? Definitely. And I think also as part of the de-schooling process, like, you know, if you've come to realize that you don't want to perpetuate that power over dynamic anymore, usually what happens is people respond to that by inverting it and giving up all power, all of their own personal power and all power to the other because they're fearful that if they don't, if they use any influence and they're going to hurt or harm um, in the relationship or they're going to, they are going to coerce or that somehow they're going to be doing the thing they don't want, right? So you kind of flip it on its head. Now it's like, like you said, like that, the kind of fear around like, oh, now all the kids call all the shots and the parents are sort of like in a servant relationship to them. And that I think is a kind of natural process that people go through. It's like, I don't want power over. So I'm going to turn, I'm going to solve the problem by turning it upside down. So now I'm not using power over, but now I am like weirdly power under and like this other person is in the position of power over. But then from that place, that's when I think the healing like starts to happen because what you realize is, oh no, hang on a minute. Like we both need to be in our personal power for this to work. Like I need to be in my authentic expression and be able to say my yes, no, maybes authentically, as well as being able to create a culture for that, for this other person and listen to that from the other person. And the only way for me to do that is for me to restore my own self-esteem. Like I have to heal myself to then come to this middle place, which is like the balance that like the universe and nature wants, right? It's like this equilibrious sweet spot in the middle where I am in my power, you are in your power and together we are like negotiating life from that place. And that is like consent-based-ness from there. So, you know, I think I do, I understand like the criticisms around it because if you're observing someone in the process of this, then you would could easily criticize. Yeah, it's like, it's not, you're not at that point yet. And some folk will struggle to get to that point because there are so many barriers to healing and there's so many thorns in the process that it can take time. It takes, you know, like a lot of awareness and all of these things but um I think that's the journey you know it's not power over let's try flipping it no that's not quite right either oh I need to come back too you know and then moving into that middle and that's really what like where I like to sit and how and, and where I like to work with people also is like nurturing that you know kind of how how can folk move into their own like the parents the adults like what does it mean for them to live a consent-based life themselves and like how can them be in they be in their family relationships from that place yeah and I mean and that's where like you know and I love how you you kind of I was gonna mention self-worth uh because that was another big thing that I got from your course and like a huge kind of realization that you know you can't really have consent basedness as you call it for without a sense of self-worth for everybody and without self-consent um but now I've forgotten my question but um yeah I might I don't have a question it was just like do you want to talk about how what that journey might look like or maybe what it looked like for you if you um, feel comfortable about it yeah I think that I was already like you know, you can sort of know something theoretically often before you feel it in your body and before you are living it in your practice or your life. And um, I, I think I mentally realized a lot of these things, like probably in the first 
you know, like years of my daughter's life, maybe the first seven years, and then had this, but through doing this um, consent-based ed course, I'd run, like I started running that in 2017 and I was probably like three or four cycles in. And every time I did it, it like pushed me closer and closer to my own sense of consensuality because of it's like happens in the work. It's hard to explain, but it was just, yeah, I don't know. It kind of like took another layer off and another layer off. And then I realized like one day, like, wow, like this exact situation I'm in right now, like I can't consent to this, to this, like this situation in my marriage is like not something that I would actively consent to given the choice like it's not good enough for me like it's not nurturing me and that really then created a lot of change in my life so it led to a separation ultimately led to me getting divorced it led to me being in new and different relationships and it's now my life is very different to how it was when I first started doing this work and I am different to how I was when I first started doing it um because I'm asking myself the question like, is that okay for me? You know, and I think that, like, I, I think the other really important factor for me was realizing that there were things that I wouldn't tolerate on behalf of my daughter that I had been tolerating for like years. You know, it was like particular family relationships, particular like experiences where I was like, there's no way that I'm going to like sit back and just observe while this carries on for my daughter. But I was like, why does my love not extend to myself enough? You know, like that I have tolerated it. And what are the beliefs that I hold or the unconscious beliefs that I have that have made me oblivious to my own experience of this exact same thing? Um and I think in that point, that's when the conflict thing comes in, right? Because you have to keep turning towards the thing that is not consensual for you in order to like address it. And like, that is not a comfortable thing at all. Like that is an extremely painful process. Like I was really traumatized from separating in my marriage. I never wanted to get divorced. It was like the last thing I wanted to do. I wasn't even vaguely open to it, you know, but it was like that you know, you almost, I don't know, it's a very deep and quite spiritual realization, at least it was for me when I was like, oh my God, I have to like, I have to step in and save my own life. And no one else is going to do that. I have to do it through my own agency and autonomy. And I think that going through that process over the years before and since has put such deep roots into the ground for me on this issue. It's like, you don't go through that and then come out willy nilly about whether consent matters. You come out with a high level of conviction and clarity about how important it is and a really high regard for your own life and for your own opportunity to live with agency and autonomy. And that is the strength, I think, that then helps me to help other people, to help create community, to talk about it with you, to do other things, because I feel like an oak tree where my roots have gone like right down into the ground, you know? Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, I think it's, I think often as, as parents, a lot of us are like, oh, gotta do this to model it for my child. Gotta be this so they can see me be this. And it's never, or it's, you know, hardly, or it's kind of, sometimes we mention it, but it's, this comes, it's a secondary thing that actually, maybe we should be doing this just for ourselves. Like, yeah, yeah. yes, we're modeling and we're modeling for, for our child, but that shouldn't be 
the push, although often, I mean, for me, for sure, that was the push. It was like to do all the things we're doing. It was like, I want my child to see this mother, uh, you know, to see me doing this and not that. Yeah. So I'm going to change who I am or not change who I am necessarily, but make different choices yeah. uh, and live in a different way because I want her to see what that looks like. Yes. Uh, but it was completely coming from that place of like, it's not for me that I'm doing this. It's for her. And I think I'm still moving into that place where yeah. I'm owning that some of the choices I make are predominantly for me because mm -hmm. I accept them and because I'm worthy of them like that's hard like even just saying that it's it's hard for me to say that and yeah. I'm getting a little <laughs> it is hard for me to say and I'm sure it's hard for many of us to say that this is yeah. I'm doing this because I it I I am worth this yeah because I want to do this you know yeah. because it's I want to do it like this is meaningful for me to do it I think you're, I think that's such an important and crucial point on this thing around the modeling versus the integrity you know it's like and sometimes the modeling helps you move into it being integral because you I do think you kind of have to like I don't want to say fake it till you make it because that's like so weird isn't it it's like the opposite of being kind of like authentic but I think that's that humans learn a lot from observing and from witnessing modeling and from examples of other humans yeah that's why representation is so important that's why a lot of this is so difficult because not many of us have ever seen consensual life like I certainly did not ever witness that so like for us to be able to live it ourselves sometimes we do have to cheat through modeling in a way it's like if I don't just try it I can't see it so I have to experiment with practicing it in modeling with a view that if I model it enough consciously, like intentionally, then it will repattern my body and my reflexes and my mind. Like, because it's not like you're doing it to be fake because you think that's a good thing. It's because you genuinely believe that that is the healthful way of expressing yourself or being in relationship or whatever it is. Like, that's why you're doing it for your child, right? So it's like, how do we get into that ourselves where well, we have to practice it? Modeling could be labeled as practicing. But I think the important thing is to be surrendered to changing to that aspect, because otherwise it risks that being performative and not, you know, you don't want to like cut the cake and find the icing is one thing. And then inside it's like another completely different thing that you weren't expecting. Right. Like that's also like a power problem when that happens, because you're creating that the, the parents ability to choose to before, perform as otherwise than themselves to the child is a misuse of power in the relationship, in my opinion. So you should be. Know. They know yeah. if you're faking it and that you're not really working on making it like they know if it's just faking. Yeah. And also it leaves you really dependent on scripts and like ways of talking that sound like kind of like predictive text. You know, it's like I think, you know, there are some some things that can be helpful like when they just become like your tool and the only tool you have because you haven't deepened your understanding of self-expression beyond the tool do you know what I mean it's like it's also not authentic it's not taking you into something that is more of what we're looking for right which is in really integrity is such a crucial part of it because again like with consent being informed if someone's behaving out of their integrity even if it's because it's for a good reason right 
I can't make a consensual choice to be in relationship with them because I don't know who the hell they are. Yeah. So like it's, it needs to be transitional behavior. I'm practicing this in order to integrate it because I'm re I'm de-schooling myself. I'm moving towards my authenticity. Do you see what I mean? Rather than a strategy for parenthood alone. And then meanwhile, when my kid's not here, the way I talk to my friends doesn't look like this way. And with my other things, it just is like kind of the hat gets taken off. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's also part of de-schooling is we try things that we're not really sold on yet, perhaps, but we're just trying them to see how it goes. And then maybe the more you do it, the more you're like, oh, actually, this is great. Well, fine. Uh, and then, yeah, it's like a gradual move into something, right? And yeah, you sorry, gone. Yeah, I was just yeah, exactly. Like I think on that journey process of like I don't like all this anymore. This thing which is here, I'm gonna do something else. Like on that journey, you're gonna try lots of hopefully experiment and try and find like what feels good to me. Like what who am I wanna have around me to help me see alternatives? What what tools might I try? What methods am I gonna look at? Like I think that is really natural right like you're gonna experiment um and then yeah but I suppose it's like under patriarchy we're we're always looking for the external solution it's like the god the father the whatever leader you want the prime minister the head the king um and on this journey what we're trying to do is like locate that sense of authority within ourselves so we're not trusting only what we see externally and again with tools and stuff like it's like experiencing them as inspiration but not giving our power to them as the answer to our anything you know it's like oh I can find something inspiring in this how does it fit for me in my life how might I tinker with it how might I adapt it so that it's right for my context or what feels good to me because very rarely is someone going to pick up a tool created by another person and be like oh yeah this is the perfect tool you know they but if we allow it to be inspiration, I say the same thing for my work. You know, when I'm working with people, I'm very much like, this is what I do. But what can you take from it that's going to help inspire you in your context? And like, these are the guiding principles we, principles we have. How might you need to alter the language so that they're more um, relevant to your community or like going to be more better understood? Or like, how might, do you see what I mean? It's like, you're just trying to inspire. It's about inspiration rather than like, um, just replacing that patriarchal figure of authority for the person like as they're trying to move away from that experience yeah and I think what that's what a lot of parenting advice has become it's become like read my book this is my method this is what it's called follow it and you will succeed and you will be the best parent or whatever and I think we've kind of lost ourselves a little bit. Like we've lost our connection to, to ourselves and like what feels right. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's also maybe because of capitalism and all the systems uh, yeah. and how we feel as parents so disconnected from any sense of like what uh, our, our cultural um, like I have no, for example, like, and I can only speak for myself really, but like, as kind of a white European person, like I, I don't really have much of a sense of like what my ancestors were doing parenting wise. And I didn't come forth into the world bringing anything 
that I can look back at and think, oh, I'm going to follow in their footsteps. And some of the stuff that I, that I know I don't want to follow. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like this weird place where you don't, you're divorced from like, uh, um, you don't have roots in yeah. history and culture. And so you're looking elsewhere, right? Outside of yourself and outside of your culture for something. And a lot of what we find is, is actually more, um, more systems in a way and more of that, like you said, like you're looking to a sort another source of power. That yeah. You can follow, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. I've been reflecting on this loads recently because I think what you're met, what you mentioned about like what's happened kind of within parenting world and stuff is a product of scaling. It's, it's what comes with any creative or inspiring person can have their idea. And the most qualitative way for them to share that is through relationship. 100%. However, that massively limits your income because the, the that requires you like right now for you to be with one other person or a small group and having a conversation for it to be the most meaningful, yeah? Um so then people have to think, "Oh, how can I scale this so that I can make more income?" But as soon as you try and scale it, you have to codify it and it loses the potency of relationship, which is often what it's about in the first place. And then again, you know, it's how it's accessed becomes like can become like missing the point. Like, like you said, it doesn't necessarily enhance people's sense of self-belief or be isn't necessarily empowering in the end, because um, we have such a tendency as a school society to turn people into gurus and to then just become a follower of that person because it makes us feel safer, maybe. Yeah, like it's and also there's I mean, there's so many reasons why that happens to us. It's a vulnerability. And um, yeah, and, and I think the key thing again with this is that this is about relationship. That's the bottom line, you know, consent happens in relationship between, again, like us and ourselves, us and each other, us and the natural world, us and our children, us and everything. And like, you can't commodify relationship. Like it, I, the, the closest we've come to commodifying relationship is the therapeutic relationship of having a therapist. That's the closest we've come or like sex work. Yeah. If we're going to talk about that kind of relating, it's, you know, so anyway, I guess it's hard to scale relational technology because it happens on a qualitative basis over time between people. Right. It's um, I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting thing. Well, no, there's no shortcut to no. building a connected, long lasting relationship like you just have to do practicing consent as consent-based life it happens in real time it happens between individuals it's you know you can't buy it you you have to live this experience and and explore it to learn it you can't just buy it and and um you can help like it's a bit like doulering I think that's the closest example I'm kind of finding is like the, it's like um, a person's de-schooling journey maybe is a bit like pregnancy birth and post-birth and the doula role I think is really helpful for the same reasons as it is with birth you know to be able to be a um, an advocate or grounding anchor to help the person explore their options to kind of but you're not taking their power away like a good doula doesn't take the mother's power away right they enhance it through advocacy and other things um not the main person like right no they're they kind of on the yeah yeah again it's like they're in their personal power you know presumably a good doula feels very grounded and has a presence to them but it's not at the cost of the personal power of who they're working together with you know 
Yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually, the doula. Yeah, yeah. doula. Although I like checked the origins of that word, and it's like woman servant, and I was like, oh man, like, yeah. is that good? <laughs> like, is there any words that aren't ruined? Um, yeah, but um, I think what you said about the cultural vacuum that we experience as white Europeans is really like totally a thing as well. And a few years ago, I was doing some academic research, like self-directed academic research into the history of childhood. And like, I was literally like, oh my God, you know, my ancestors parenting strategy included killing their own kids. I mean, it's so violent. I had to stop the research because I couldn't do it and parent at the same time because it was so traumatic. I mean, it's just bad. Like white Western parenting history is violence, basically. It's the same as women's history. It's not good, you know? So I, I do think we have to like allow a spaciousness between ourselves and that past and present, you know, in uh, in lots of ways as well. Um, and, and reconnect with our own, what is like, I don't know. I really don't like the whole kind of like indigeneity-ness of things again, like, I think indigeneity is really important, but it's like our own selves to our own place. It's not like taking from surviving indigenous cultures around the world, but it's kind of like, if I have a heartbeat, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for drumming? What does that mean for, do you see what I mean? It's going really back to the, even the origin of the concept of indigeneity, which I think is like really connection to like land and self and like exploring, building culture from those connections oh god I mean that's another whole topic isn't it <laughs> another topic and actually I've, I've been talking about that a little bit lately with several people and and also about how uh, uh you know as as white people sometimes we have a tendency to like look at other cultures and be like we should be doing it like them mm-hmm. uh, and just like picking aspects of that and you know calling it something and repackaging it for like you know western people uh and that's not obviously what you're talking about and that's also not the solution to this Um, i think it really is helpful to like as parents specifically who are wanting like a more consent-based life like recognizing that um how we create our own cultural experience in this new paradigm is really important and how much intentionality we can have in that I think like for myself at the moment that looks really a lot like artistic practice I'm doing loads of like abstract watercolor painting and I love live music and like I have a sort of witchy magical practice as well but it's very much about um it's very much like contextual to my lived experience rather than um adopted from something else so it's like where are places that I've been that have been meaningful to me on some level like how what can I learn from them like how can I weave that in but it's like not just picking up another cultural practice it's more kind of like what was the essence of that thing oh it was the taste of this thing or the sound of the water or do you know what I mean like these things have started to form my own cultural experience and that's so nice you know to because I think otherwise like with with consent-based education as I understand it it includes these five areas of agency and autonomy it's intellectual emotional spiritual physical and creative and all of them have consent applies and self-direction applies all of them may have different boundaries all of them need different care and so I think like to feel imbalanced like you know that middle point that we were talking about 
it does help like it's easier to feel grounded and balanced when you're tending across that garden of areas you know so I, I think about that for myself how can I nurture my spiritual aspect you know what do I what do I need to do or experience and then all the other ones as well like what is how's my creative aspect is it feeling balanced is it feeling good you know because when they are in balance then you're much more able to be present to other people's experience and not be projecting your own unmet need onto them which I think is what can really then disrupt like um learning processes in families or in communities is when maybe the parent has unmet creative need and then rather than exploring that themselves they project it on something that they're onto the child and it's like oh why isn't my child painting more or like why isn't my child in nature more it's like you need to go to nature like you need to paint because if you did you wouldn't see that anymore but you would see them yeah, that's so true. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for, for chatting. That was so good. I feel like I have a million other things to talk about, but that'll be for another day. Thank you for being here. Oh, oh, and before you, before you go, do you want to share uh, where people can find you? I know you don't do social media that much. Yeah, yeah. So um, sophiechristoffi.com is where you can find me for the mentoring, blogging, writing, bits and bobs and any events I'm doing, I always put them up there. And then um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. Again, it's just Sophie Christoffi, my name. Um, and yeah, that's what, oh, and also if you want to check out the settings, then you can go to downatthecabin.com and then you can see like our guiding principles are there and a typical day and about our team and stuff. So yeah, they're the main areas. Okay, thank you so much, Sophie. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing and sharing. It's an absolute labor of love for me. And uh, I would really love if I could reach more people with it. Thank you.